something we're going to um, continue in our summer series, and it's a nice way to craft this uh, introduction. The summer series really means we have a, a, a variety of preachers and they get to preach on whatever they want, and we've called it a summer series. And so this morning, we're looking at uh, these passages that are really, really important to Jesus and very important to the disciples. And uh, this is where Jesus and the disciples and those around in his entourage are challenged and are challenging Jesus about what it means to, to follow him, to follow me. Um, one of the things about this, this uh, Messiah, this Christ that we follow, is that he seemed to start his whole ministry in a rather radical way. I don't know if you've noticed it, but when you open up the gospel, you find you're introduced to the baby Jesus. And the next thing you know, Jesus is talking to men similar age to him, and he's saying, will you follow me? And it's like, how did this happen? How on earth does this happen within a, within a society that a guy would just roll into somebody else's life and say, will you follow me? And uh, Peter, uh, Simon Peter and his brother Andrew and then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, they are asked by Jesus as to whether they would follow him. And it's sort of this mutual understanding that there's something going on here bigger than everybody. And yet within the culture itself, this was not unusual. And so we're going to look at what it means to follow Jesus. We're going to look at some scriptures where people approach Jesus to follow him. But we're also going to rediscover what it meant in the time of Jesus when they were looking for a Messiah and people were looking for followers, other rabbis, other leaders. It was quite an involved process, but it helps us make sense of this whole challenge of following Christ. So let's, let's pray and ask God to open our eyes of understanding this morning. Lord, we, um, we're here because for most of us, we, we follow you. We choose to follow you. And we say those words quite lightly. We say them honestly. We say them with determination. But at the same time, they are powerful words, which mean that you will craft our lives. You will give direction as we follow you. So open the eyes of our understanding today as we look at Scripture and we see for the first time in the life of the Christian movement where people chose to follow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, ministry for Jesus at this time that we're going to look at was going very well. Uh, it seemed that everything he touched, of course, uh, people were healed, people were set free. Uh, and we're going to just pick up on this as we lead into the passages that I'm addressing this morning. So this is from Matthew chapter 8, and uh, it just precedes this uh, story we're going to look at. When Jesus came into Peter's house, he saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on him. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill what, the, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and bore our diseases. So in this moment here, we can see that things are going really well. Everybody around Jesus would have been appreciating what he bought, healing, driving off demonic powers and principalities, uh, even arranged for his own meals to be served by Peter's mother, young well, yes I am, be healed, now prepare me a sandwich. And, and so life, was going, life is going well. Uh, in the ministry. And, and then there's a, a code word that Jesus uh, uses next, and he's on 
to the next step of his mission. And I want you to pick this up and get to feel what it is that this discussion is about. When Jesus saw the crowd around him, he gave orders to cross to the other side of the lake. Then a teacher of the law came to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus replied, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. Now the code word here is right in the first sentence. Uh, talking about the crowd, he's leaving, and he said that he's going to the other side of the lake. Now, the other side of the lake in this circumstance is across the lake, the Lake Galilee, and into the area of the Gentiles. Okay, so Jesus has been ministering to his own people at this time, and yet he's saying, now enough is enough. I've got a mission bigger than you. I need to break into the land of the Gentiles. And if we were to read further through this story, we'll find that he's met by a demoniac who's been wandering in the graves in chains and naked. And so we, many of us will know that story. But uh, for now, we're going to stop here before this, this time, before he gets in the boat, and look at how it is that Jesus interacts with a couple of men who seem to have, have this idea that Jesus is going places and we need to get in on the ground floor of this. Okay, it's a little bit like that. That's the feel of it. Uh, so this teacher of the law came up to him and said, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Now, a teacher of the law is, is, in some of your Bibles, it'll be called a scribe. He'll be called a scribe, okay? Someone who's very fastidious about the scriptures would have studied them all of their life. And what it means in this context is that for somebody to have been a scribe means that they have literally committed their life to knowing the scriptures. And they would have started off as a young child, about five or six years old, going to certain schools and they learned the scriptures literally off by heart. And then at the age of 12, 13, they go to another school. And then the age of 15, 14, 15, 16, depending on how well they have come to learn the scriptures, they will then go to essentially a finishing school. Now, not everybody qualified for the finishing school. From that place in the finishing school, they would become a Pharisee or a scribe. And that meant that they were going to follow in the footsteps of the person that they have been assigned to. Now, the assigning of somebody to a teacher wasn't something that was done by uh, somebody like a school principal or even a parent, maybe they were involved. But what it meant is that that young person, a young man, would determine who he wanted to be his rabbi, who he wanted to be his rabbi. And there were lots of different rabbinic schools. Now, the different rabbinic schools held different interpretations of Scripture. And that meant that some had a tighter rule of, uh, of interpretation about Scripture and the definitions of what things meant. Some were a little bit more liberal. But you essentially would take on the yoke of that rabbi that you chose to follow. And this is where the term yoke comes from. Of course, it's a farming term. You put oxen and, and horses and donkeys into a yoke. It's that, that heavy piece of wood that goes over their shoulders so that they can pull a plow or something of that nature. But within the, in the school of teaching, the yoke was the teaching of that rabbi. And so when you went to the rabbi, you would uh, talk to him and he would question you as to whether you would be capable of carrying his yoke, carrying his teaching. Okay, And so here we have a young man who's come to, well, we assume he's a young man. Uh, he may well have been older, but he's already a teacher of the law. He's already a scribe. And he's come to Jesus and he says, I will follow you wherever you go. 
Now, for us, we go, wow, that's a pretty radical move. You know, the guy hasn't even sorted out the electricity bill. He's, who's going to, how's he going to do this? Well, this was well within a context of understanding of the day. Okay, so when somebody would come to a rabbi and say, I will follow you, what they were saying is, I will carry your yoke. Now, this guy, having seen all of these miracles and the likes going on, he would have been thinking that he's on the ground floor of a good thing going on here. Because you can see how he'd imagine with this sort of gathering going on of all the miraculous, a crowd would have been a, a, a really generous group of people who would have supported Jesus. And uh, for this, this scribe to say, hey, I want to follow you, I want to go where you go, he's buying into this lifestyle and a pattern of thinking and a pattern of worship that Jesus was going to provide. However, he didn't have the kingdom plan in mind because this hadn't been revealed to him. We can't really blame him for this answer that Jesus gives, but it's a defining answer that describes to us Jesus' ministry for the next few years. Of course, everybody assumed that Jesus is going to hang around until he passes away of old age. Jesus knows that he has a limited time to establish the kingdom. And so he looks at this young guy, and what does he say? He says, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So we can get clever here and start interpreting this, what does a fox mean, what does a bird mean, what does a nest mean, what does a den mean? but it literally means that Jesus was not going to set up an institution, okay? He wasn't going to set up buildings. He wasn't going to set up classrooms. He wasn't going to set up accommodation blocks. He wasn't going to start putting his uh, messages out on, on the internet. He wasn't going to write books. He wasn't going to do any of this. He was a man who was on a mission, and he was saying, look, basically, if you follow me, this isn't going to be the same as what other rabbis would do with their yoke when they build a... Uh, sort of a fraternity around it and an academic institution around it and a whole lifestyle around that yoke. Jesus saying, look, we're on the move here. Other animals have places to hang out, but, but we don't, okay? We don't have a place to lay our head, a domiciled address, all right? And so for, for, this, for this young man who had asked of Jesus what it is that he would have to do to follow him, essentially in that question, he's being pushed back on saying, look, this isn't what it seems. And uh, the, the other side of it is that um, when Jesus took this, um, this group of disciples with him, the 12 disciples, uh, he had a specific task assigned to each one of them. And, and in the task of leading them and teaching them, he knew that the 12 would be enough. Okay, the 12 would be enough. He had a bigger group around him but that was sort of the hangers-on, really, but the 12 was enough. So when Jesus was saying to him, follow me, he was saying to him, follow me in the context of uh, you're not going to have a place to hang your head. You know, he didn't actually say, don't follow me, but he probably pushed back on this guy who thought, oh, okay, this is going to be outside of the norm. It's going to be outside of the comfort zone because the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, when the... When Jesus used this term, the son of man, that again would have been a, a code word for the scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders and the uh, academics of the day. See, Jesus here calls himself the son of man. And the son of man terminology comes straight out of the prophetic books like the books of Isaiah, the books of Daniel. 
And for Jesus to refer to himself as the Son of Man, again, is a giveaway to the lifestyle and pattern of life and ministry that he's going to lead. Let me show you what I mean by that. I'll go straight to uh, Daniel. It's actually Daniel chapter 7. haven't got the marking here, unfortunately. In Daniel chapter 7, he says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Okay, so you see the terminology there? This is hundreds of years before Jesus. One like the son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days, that's God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. I, Daniel, was troubled in my spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. Okay, so there's Daniel being very honest about this revelation that he's just had of this coming Christ. But this coming Christ is referred to as the Son of Man. And so again, when he's pushing back on this, when Jesus is pushing back on this young guy who says, I'll follow you, he's saying, look, bro, this is not going to be an easy ride. Not only do you not have a place to lay your head, but we're on a prophetic journey here. We're on an apocalyptic, What is it? Apocalyptic. That's the word. Okay. Apocalyptic. Apocalyptic journey here. Okay. And we're on a prophetic journey here. So you see the words that Daniel uses to describe the Son of Man. Uh, see there in that third sentence, verse 14, he says, He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language, language worshipped him. So this is the reference that Jesus is making to himself. In that moment, on the edge of that lake shore, before he goes on that ride across the water to the Gentiles, he is saying, look, if you're going to go on this journey with me, it's going to be a ride that you've never, ever experienced before because we're setting up a new kingdom here. We're not just setting up an academic institution. We're not just setting up a school. We're not just setting up an administration center. Uh, we're not just setting up an internet service where we can just broadcast my messages around the world. This is going to change the world. Not only this world, but the world to come because every nation will bow. Every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus, all right? So there's a lot going on on this lake shore, isn't there? A lot going on. And then we find another disciple comes up to Jesus with the same idea in mind. So Jesus has obviously generated this real enthusiasm, isn't he? which, you know, miracles and healing will often do, of course. So another disciple said to him, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Whoa, what's going on here? Let me bury my father. So, I mean, for, for obvious reasons, the first interpretation of this is, is this guy's dad back home in the living room, dead, you know? Is, uh, is this guy uh, got, an, got something to attend to here that's really, really immediate? And, and if he's, what he's really saying is, I just want to bury my dad. If you can just hold the boat, I'll be back in a couple of hours. I'm good with a shovel, okay? All right, well, that's actually not what's going on here. What this guy is doing is he is telling Jesus about the biggest social and cultural responsibility that he has as a son towards his dad, and that is to be there at the time of his death, ideally, 
and to go through the formalities of the funeral for the father. Uh, it is a responsibility of the son to dress the body of his father for burial. It is a responsibility to do all the organisation. And then after the immediacy of that funeral service, he waits a year. And after a year, and this is quite traditional within Māori culture as well, after a year, <coughs> um, he would go and take the bones from the, uh, the crypt where he was put in, and he would clean the bones, and they would then have another service, and the bones are put in the ossuary, the family crypt, once again in a different place. But this whole process was a process of mourning that took a year. And so when this guy says, hey, hold on, I just want to bury my father, what he's actually saying is, I've got a whole lot of cultural responsibilities that I have to uh, pass through before I'm in a position where I can follow you, Jesus. Now, this in itself um, sounds reasonable, doesn't it? Because Jesus is, would understand, surely, that you know, parents matter, families matter. And in fact, you know, Mary, Jesus' own mother, was the one who prompted him to do the first miracle, the turning of water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. So, you know, he's, he's in there with his mum. Him and, him and his mum are close. Um, you've, we've already seen Jesus restore a young man who died, and he went past the funeral, and he raised him from the dead and restored him to his mother, his mother being a widow. So we see that relationships are really, really important for Jesus. So the burying of your father would seem like a, a thing that Jesus would be allowed to say, so Jesus would allow to happen. Uh, let's just go to Luke's gospel and see a similar scenario. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus and turning to them, he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not carry their cross and, and follow me cannot be my disciple. So again, hard words... Jesus is using that word hate. He's saying, you've got to hate. Now, he doesn't literally mean hate on somebody. What he's drawing here is a distinction between serving the kingdom of God or serving your family. He said the kingdom has got to be a priority. And many of us get challenged by this when we make decisions to follow Christ. It might be our brothers or sisters give us a hard time. It's like, ah, what do you want to do that for? Or maybe your parents have given you a difficult time about your decision to follow Jesus. Jesus made it really, really strong here, really emphatic, that the priority of being a kingdom follower, a Jesus follower, far outweighs the cultural expectations and the cultural traditions of the day. And so when we look back at this interaction that Jesus is having with this man who says, I've got to go and bury my father, what Jesus is saying to him, he's saying is let the dead bury their own. And he's making a reference there to, um, to the spiritually dead burying the physically dead. The spiritual dead burying the physical dead. Okay, Because when you follow Jesus, you're born again. Your spirit comes alive. You have a whole new look at the world. You have a whole new set of values. You're a kingdom person now, not an earthly person. You're a spiritual person, not someone who's absorbed with the things and the patterns and the ways of the world. And so here with these two sentences, 
that Jesus interacts with these would-be disciples, Jesus has redefined or defined what it means to be a follower of him. He's saying, you're not going to have somewhere to lay your head. We're on, we're on an apocalyptic journey here that's going to have a, a conclusion with a clash of kingdoms between heaven and earth at some point. And not only that, but you've got to lay aside your cultural traditions, or at least to the point where they don't get in the way of serving me, Jesus would say. And so we find ourselves hearing these words of Jesus, and we, we say, what is it that Jesus is trying to say? I probably should have put this on the screen, but Matthew eleven twenty eight says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Are they great words? Yeah. Now, Jesus wasn't talking to the, to the average person when he said this. He was addressing the religious leaders. He was addressing those who were following rabbis, taking their yoke. You see, the thing about religion is that it's very easy to get zealous for the wrong thing. And in Jesus' day, this is exactly what was occurring. People were following rabbis who continued to ratchet up the energy levels that were needed to express your desire or your goal of worshipping God. They would make it harder and harder and harder for people. You remember Jesus challenged the Pharisees saying, you tithe your dill and cumin seed. Okay, have you ever seen dill and cumin seed? It's like dust. All right, so they're there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine for me. One for God. One, two, three, four. Achoo. Let's start again. One, two, three. <laughs> and this is what they were doing. They were just ratcheting up. And so one group of uh, followers of a certain rabbi would be in competition with another group. You say, oh, look, that group of rabbis, those guys who are training to be teachers, Look at them, man. They're, they're just real worldly. They, they watch the rugby on a Saturday night. We wouldn't watch the rugby on a Saturday night. Yeah, look at that group there. They, they, they drink alcohol. We wouldn't do that. We're too busy tithing our Dylan Cumin seat. And so you've got all of these different levels of competition as people try to display this righteousness that they have before God to win his favour. And then Jesus rocks into this place and he blows it apart by saying, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. Come to me, all you who are heavy laden, heavy burdened. Okay, he's talking to all these zealous, God-fearing young men and women who are desperate to know God and please him. He's saying, just lay it all down. Just lay it all down. Come and follow me. Come and follow me on a journey that will build another kingdom, that will create something special, something unique, something God-fearing, but not in a way where your yoke is burdening you down. Traditions are good only if they serve God's greater purpose. And, and you've got to run that, that slide rule, if we can still use that term these days, slide rule, across all culture. Culture needs to be measured through the grid of Jesus' ministry and his preferences. Every culture 
has good things about it, but every culture has something bad about it. And you need to be able to work that through and toss it out. And in this case, Jesus is saying, don't waste your life waiting for dad to die. Because it's essentially what's happening. Don't waste your life waiting for dad to die. Dad might be one of these really old, robust figures, you know, who's going to live to a hundred. You know, think of poor old Prince Charles. He's been, he's been waiting for decades for mum and dad to... <laughs> anyway, I shouldn't go there, but you get the feeling, you know? He's going to be saying, look, I'm 70 already. My best days are gone. Mum's still doing well. So Jesus is saying, don't spend your rest, the best of your life waiting for someone to die. Get on with building the kingdom, yeah? And let the kingdom be your priority. And so I want to finish with this, and I just want to finish with a story that was prompted to me this week. Um, In Hebrews, the writer says, through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. These young men were desperately desperate to serve God. Let's not put them in any other category. It's just that Jesus was correcting their thinking. These were great young men who you'd love to have around you. Okay? But they were caught up in culture, caught up in expectations which were worldly rather than heavenly. And, and I think of this scripture here that they would be the people who would offer up a sacrifice of praise. A sacrifice is saying, well, I don't really feel like this today, but I'm going to bring it anyway. Okay? I don't feel like it. This, a sacrifice overrides emotion. All right? Overrides feelings. Yeah? Most of us do it at some level every day. Offer up a sacrifice of doing the dishes in the evening. You know, no one gets excited really about doing the dishes. But we do it for our family, don't we? We do it for those we love. And for Jesus, he's saying, for God, I should say, he's saying through the writer here, bring a sacrifice of praise. And when I was preparing this, <clears throat> I thought of a really personal story in respect to my own family. Uh, five years ago, our son-in-law, Carl, passed away from leukemia. And he had a real battle with that over a year. So he was uh, 24 when he got leukemia, and uh, he was 25 when he passed away. So during this whole journey, as many of you would appreciate, uh, with cancer, you you go into uh, a plan of taking chemo and the like, and then you wait and see if your blood results show that the cancer has been killed. And so Carl went through about four or five of these, then he went through a, a really big process, a stem cell transplant, and uh, that didn't work either. And so sitting with his mum and our daughter Brittany, one day doctors came in and they said, Carl, um, that last, that last med- set of medicines we gave you, it, it hasn't worked. And I'm sorry to say, but you've got about six weeks left to live. And so the doctor left and Brittany said, OK, Carl, we, we've lived in this tension for a year now. What would you like to do? What's the most important thing for you to do? And he said, well, um, being a worship leader in his church, he said, I want to organize a worship night and just invite everybody who wants to come, to come into the church 
And uh, we just have a night of worship and give thanks to God. And, uh, and Brittany and his mum looked at him and said, and what else would you like to do? And he goes, oh, I can't really think of anything else right now, but that's what I'd like to do. And so for everybody who heard about this, we're all really, really deeply saddened by the prospect, or the, now we've been told, being assured, that Carl is going to die. And he said, I want to organise a night of thanksgiving, which seems to be the opposite to how you'd feel, isn't it? You think maybe set up some form of wake, a time of mourning. But anyway, his church was great, and uh, um, they, they put it out there on Facebook and social media, and anybody just legged it out through all the different avenues, and uh, no one knew what to expect. But that night, over 800 people turned up. And, um, and it, was just, it was just awesome. Because people were there bringing a sacrifice of praise. Yeah? This is beyond feelings. This is an act of will. And I've got to say, it's one of the most powerful moments that I've ever experienced in my life was in the last uh, two songs. Um, I was sitting right behind Carl because he wasn't very strong, so he wasn't up on stage doing anything. And I just leaned over to him and I said, do you think you could lead these songs? And he just walked up on stage and the, the lead singer handed him the microphone and he, he led these last two songs. And it was just one of those most powerful moments because in that time, it, the Holy Spirit did something and it was just like heaven and earth just fused together for about 10 or 12 minutes. You know, it just fused together. And there wasn't a dry eye in the place because we had somebody here who was exemplifying what it means to bring a sacrifice of praise. And that same worship team led at his funeral seven weeks later. The reason why I tell that story is because um, when these young men came to Jesus, they were intent on following him anywhere, anytime, any place. But for Jesus, he wanted to correct their thinking. The interesting thing about the story is that we don't actually know what the, what the conclusion was. We don't know whether the guy said, yep, someone else can look after my dad, I'm coming, you know. Or the other guy goes, yeah, I don't care about whether you're going to have institutions or buildings, I'm happy to sleep on a rock, I'm coming with you. But I have a sense that the energy that these guys were bringing to this conversation was such that they would have given up anything and everything to be in that place, to be able to see more of what Jesus is doing, to be part of the front line of his kingdom. And that, for all of us, is that same challenge of what it means to follow him. It's to take our priorities, our cultural priorities, our sense of urgency for material reassurance, and lay it all at the feet of the cross. And, and as we start this new year, Let's, let's do this. Let's, let's create something new and fresh within us. I was, I was um, preparing in, the, in one of the other offices this week, this talk, and, uh, and in the corner of this desk, there's a plant. And uh, it doesn't need watering because it's plastic. Okay? It's just the sort that a man looks after. The thing about a plastic plant is you can water it all you want. It's not going to change it. And, and for this year, you can listen to 52 sermons and 
Shine TV and your favourite podcast and Radio Rima and everything else going on. But unless you're in a place where you can absorb, you're going to get all the watering you want and nothing's going to change. Is that fair to say? Yeah. So this year, let's work on bringing an open heart to God, a gentle heart, a heart that's responsive to the prompting of the Spirit, and, um, and allow God to water you through his word and through fellowship and through the things that you put into your own lives. Because that's what God wants from us, isn't it? It's just an open heart. So let's not be plastic plants this year. We may give the impression of being shiny and holy and righteous, but nothing gets in. Nothing gets out either. You look the same today, yesterday, and forever. And you're good for collecting dust. Why don't we stand? Why don't we stand for prayer? Just invite the team to come and lead us in this last song. Let's pray. God, there are people just like us who were surrounding Jesus those thousands of years ago. People with searching hearts, people anxious to be in on the ground floor of something that was super exciting in their day. The Messiah had come. And he was going to bring something that was just so radical that people couldn't even get their head around it. And so, Lord, we, we, we want to remind ourselves that we're in that same position. We're literally getting in that same boat. And we want to be in a place where we cross to the other side, where we just make our lives open to receive from you, make our lives open so that we can give out to others the hope that we have, the hope in Christ. And so, Lord, we, we just want to agree together today that you give us a freshness in our spirit, uh, the ability to receive, the ability to absorb, the ability to change, and to be able to move forward with a kingdom agenda and put you high on our priority list, way above culture, way above family, way above other priorities that we would have in our lives that seem to draw us away from your agenda. And so, God, we, we give, uh, give ourselves afresh to you today. And even in this song that we sing, I just want to pray, Lord, that you would uh, just help us to have tender hearts before you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe if you want to, you want to be really brave, you could um, have someone pray for you at the front of church. Just say, hey, that's me. I feel a bit like a plastic plant, well watered, but not growing anywhere. Um, Maybe you need to just sort of open yourself up a bit, a bit of humility and just say, let's, let's do something different this year, God. So I just want to invite our prayer team to come forward <coughs> and um, any, any elders that are in the house uh, come forward as well. I'll just make people available for prayer. Okay, thank you.